This whole idea that we've got to be like the world to save the world is from the devil. You know what the world needs? They need to see people who know and love God and are willing to proclaim it. The Bible talks about God's great love at great length. But how does this truth weave together with God's judgment and His commands for us to not love the world? In this sermon, Joshua West explores why God's holiness means He does not accept any way of living that is apart from His Word. As followers of God, this means that we will love righteousness and not excuse sin, no matter how tempting it may be to follow worldly ways. Good morning and thanks for joining us today in the World Challenge Chapel. If you're joining us online or on YouTube, thank you for being with us. If you'll get your Bible out and turn with me once again to the epistle of 1 John, today we'll be in chapter 2 and we're only going to be dealing with three verses. John, 1 John 2 verses 15 through 17. And this sermon is titled, Do Not Love the World. Do not love the world. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. God, we thank you today for your word, Lord, for the clear directives that are given to us in Scripture, Lord. Lord, I pray for those of us who are regenerate, God, the reborn ones, your children set apart from this world, God, that we will hear your words, God, and that we will heed them and that we will obey them. God, I pray for those who might be falsely converted, people that have false assurance based on things that are not biblical. God, that this word would cut to their heart, Lord, and that they might repent and call you Savior and Lord and be reborn so that they too may abide forever, Lord, with the Father. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a very important message. It wasn't just an important message for the Apostle John's time. It is an important message for the church in all times because the church will always be under attack from, from things outside the church, but, but, but more threatening are things inside of the church. People calling themselves Christ followers who live in ways that don't reconcile with this word or who teach things that draw us from the sound doctrine, the truth of God's word. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon who originally coined the phrase, a love that God hates. Now, many people have said something similar over the years, um, but this is what, what he said regarding this particular passage of Scripture. There is a love that God hates, and that love is love for the world and the things of the world. Many biblical pastors have used this phraseology over the years, but it's important to acknowledge that love of this fallen world and the things of this fallen world system, God despises. 
It's also important to pause here and make sure that we acknowledge that God is love. This is a divine character attribute of God. We do not superimpose our flawed view or our fallen and finite definition of what love is on God. This is what many people do in the world. They superimpose their definition of love on God and then question whether or not God is loving based on their judgments. This is ridiculous. And if you're a Christian, you need to run far and fast from this. We need to remember that we define what love is based on who God is and how he has revealed himself in the scripture. We define what love is based on who God is because God is love and he alone is the creator of all things. God himself is love. So we need to define what love actually is based on what the Bible says love actually is. Not our flawed, fallen, crooked, human, finite understanding of this concept. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, and God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And in this love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So what we believe love is, is given to us in the scripture and is perfected in us through the spirit of God. We can't make judgments on God because God is the source of all things. If, we, if by faith we actually believe that God is the creator of the universe and that includes us, then we don't get to decide what is right and wrong. We don't get to decide what love is. We don't get to decide who God is. We don't get to decide why God created us. The love of God is a theme through the entirety of the scripture. And because he is the origin of love and the origin of all things, his love is a perfect love. But listen, since God's love is perfect, also so is his hate, so is his justice, and so is his judgment. Now you might say, wait a second, God doesn't hate anything. Well, the Bible would disagree with you. The Bible says that God hates imperfect scales, that God hates injustice, that God hates anything that draws away from his word or his name. It says hates. It says God hates specific character attributes of the fall. It says God hates idolatry. We must understand that we see the love of God in two ways in scripture. We see the love of God in creation itself and we see the love of God and common grace as well as 
redemptive grace. So we see, we see the love of God um, you know, all around us. We see the evidence of God's character and patience and kindness and goodness. But the two ways we really see the love of God in His grace bore out is common grace and redemptive grace. Common grace means that while we are blasphemers in rebellion of God, that God still gives us things like the ability to see food come out of the ground, that God loans us air that will circulate in and out of our lungs, that God allows our blood to flow through our bodies, that God gives us another day called today, which is an opportunity to, to surrender and repent and, and, and call on Christ as Savior. This is common grace. Everything around you that you benefit from God's creation is common grace. It's not owed to you. You don't deserve it. God is right in doing whatever he pleases because he is God. So that's common grace. But we see the more specific and more powerful version of God's love in his redemptive grace. The fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the love of God in the gospel. To perfectly love, one must also be perfect in justice and perfect in hate. Puritan John Owen once said, the more perfectly you love something, the more hate you will have for the things that oppose it. And you might say, wait a second, this is, this is not the, the sort of brand of the love of God I grew up hearing. And that's probably because maybe you're, you didn't attend a biblical church. Listen, God does hate things. God hates sin. And I'll give you some examples of things that because God hates and because of God's love that we too must hate. I'll give you an example. As a human being made in God's image, because I love African-American people who are made in the image of God, I hate slavery. I mean, those two things, if to, to, to have one, you must have the other. How about this? Because I love babies created in the very image of God, I hate abortion. I don't just kind of dislike it. I hate it. I hate the fact that innocent babies are murdered on the altar of convenience because the devil has entered into the hearts and the minds of people and they look at themselves as more important than a little tiny baby made in the very image of God. God hates sin. He burns white hot against it. It will bring him pleasure one day to eradicate sin from the world. And it's so important to remember this, that God doesn't punish sin forever in hell. He punishes unrepentant sinners. This is what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ so beautiful. It's the fact that he made a way of redemption for sinners. But listen, if that sinner rejects the way of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ that has been afforded to him through grace and by the precious blood of God's Son, then it will give God pleasure one day to give them what they deserve. Now, for some of you, this is going to completely go in the face 
of the theology you've been raised in. And that's fine because I'm not saying anything that the Bible don't say. The reason some of you don't believe this is because you don't understand that the New Testament and the Old Testament are equally inspired. That God didn't change all of a sudden. It's not like he was mean in the Old Testament. And then when he got to the New Testament, he started being nice. No, in fact, the same God who, who raised Jesus from the dead and, and, and went to the cross on your behalf is the same God who, who was a God of justice and wrath in the Old Testament. See, we actually see the wrath of God in a much more expansive and demonstrative way in the New Testament than we do in the Old we see the full measure of God's wrath poured out in one place at one time. There's a place in history where the love of God, the grace of God, the justice of God, and the wrath of God all converge at one time. And that place is the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's get into the text. Verse 15 the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, hear this, the love of the Father is not in him. So in the previous handful, uh, handful of verses, John addresses true, believer, true believers and calls them dear children of the faith. He addresses fathers who are spiritually mature. He addresses young men who are walking out their victory, walking out salvation as people who have overcome the evil one. And he addresses baby Christians and assures them all that they are standing right before God based on what Christ did on the cross. He uses the phrase, your sins have been forgiven. And now he turns back to making a separation or a distinction between those who had departed from the fellowship in John's time, those who, who, who held themselves as spiritually superior because of private revelations and dreams and secret knowledge that they had that made them feel that they were superior to the, the faithful assembly of God's true children. And so he wants to make a, a very uh, great distinction by them. And John is really, over the course of this epistle, given a series of tests. These tests, uh, one test being, if you truly know and love God, you will obey his word. Or if you truly know and love God, you will love your brother. And today he's going to say, if you truly know and love God, you will not have love for the world. He turns back and makes sure that he makes this serious distinction like the juxtaposition between light and dark. 1 John 5, 4 says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So it's through faith in Jesus, true faith, saving faith, a confession of faith that is centered on true belief in your heart, if it's a true profession of faith that you've made, that you realize that God is holy, that you are a grievous sinner, and that the grace of God will save you in the cross and what Jesus did on your behalf, that faith, in that moment, you are justified before God and you have overcome 
the world. Yes, we will grow in sanctification. Yes, we will still be tempted with sin. But the marking characteristic of a true Christian is the love for God. And that love for God is not reconcilable with love of the world. Now, it's important that we make some distinctions regarding the different uses of the term world in the Bible. It's important to make sure, first and foremost, that we understand that God or that John is not talking about the created world. John is not telling us to hate the world that has been made by the hands of God. Nature that, that helps us testify and glorify the God who created it. He's not telling us to disdain the mountains that we see or the, the beauty of, of, you know, the animals and, and the sort of reproduction of the world and, and the beauty of creation and the beauty of the seasons. This is not what he's talking about. Because God himself said that these things are good. And even in their fallen state, they still um, represent the handiwork of the creator. Now, we don't worship creation. That's what a lot of environmentalists do today. That's what a lot of New Age Gnostic religion does. It, it worships creation. We, we feel like we owe our lives to Mother Nature, which there is no such thing. But John isn't talking about um, not loving that world because God created it. He's also not talking about man. He's not talking about humanity. He's not saying don't love the world of humanity. God is not talking about people because it makes it clear in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, the people in the world, humanity, that he sent his only son to die for them so that if they would call upon the name of Jesus by faith that they might be saved. That's the point of the gospel. So he's not talking about the, the created world. He's not talking about the world of humanity. The world that John is talking about, and, and he's writing us and urging us not to love, is the world system that permeates our reality due to the fall of mankind. All things that are not subjected to the rightful lordship of Jesus Christ. It is a way of life that doesn't re revere and obey God's commands, that doesn't subject itself to the sacred words of Scripture. That's what, uh, what Paul is talking about in Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 2, when he says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's talking about this world system, the philosophies of this world, the psychology of this world, the wisdom of this world, the, the, the things of this world, the pleasures of this world, all things fallen, all things that cause idolatry in the hearts of men. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in trespass and sins, in, once, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is what John is talking about. 
In 1 John 5, 19, it says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So he's making a distinction later in this epistle that's making sure that we understand that as reborn ones, we are separated from the world system now. We are different. We are foreigners. We are exiles. We are sojourners. We are merely passing through. We were never meant to fit in with this world. We were darkness and now we are the light of the world. We are supposed to be like a lamp set on a hill. We are supposed to, to stand out, not go with the flow. This whole idea that we've got to be like the world to save the world is from the devil. You know what the world needs? They need to see people who know and love God and are willing to proclaim it, who actually believe it, who live by faith, who are willing to suffer for their faith, who are willing to stand for their faith, who are willing to love their enemies. Salt and light. The world that, that John uses in, in the fifth chapter of this epistle is the same way that Jesus uses this term in the 15th chapter of John's gospel. Listen to this. John 15, 18 through 19. Jesus speaking, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See what he's saying? He's saying, listen, the world's going to hate you because it hated me. And now that I live inside of you through the Spirit of God, and you are living like me, you are proclaiming my words, you are living for my glory, the world's going to hate you too. You're going to stand out like a sore thumb. You're going to stand out like a match that's lit in a dark, dark room. Because we truly know God and are foreigners, and now because we are regenerate and our spiritual eyes are open, and we have overcome the devil, and we are growing in intimacy with Christ in an ever-increasing way, we have no love for the world or the things of the world because they stand opposed to the Savior who saved us and the God we love. People who argue this point are either very immature baby Christians or they are unregenerate, and there really is no other way to say it. You can't have a pattern of loving the world in your life, longing for the things of the world, longing for the praise and acclaim of the world, longing for the passions and desires of this world, the things that motivate those who are children of wrath and be a Christian. This doesn't mean your flesh is never tempted by these things, but the pattern of the true Christian life does not look like the world. They, they, they hate us not because we, we say nice things to them. They hate us because we proclaim the truth of God, that we say things like Jesus is the only way to God and all other gods are idols. The God of Islam is an idol. The God of Hinduism or the gods of Hinduism are false gods. Your spiritual but not religious new age nonsense is false. And I say this out of love because Jesus is the only way to God. I believe it by faith. 
I've overcome the world, not because of anything I've done, but because Christ lives in me. And that is the message of the true Christian. The Christian who's constantly arguing to be close to the world, who's trying to make excuses for the world, who's trying to make excuses for the lukewarm Christian. I am terrified for that person. John uses this as a test towards those in his time who have departed from the faith, who have a form of godliness, but are not sound in doctrine and do not live a life of obedience to God's word. Worldliness and love of the world and all the things of this fallen world system are evidence that you do not belong to God. I'm not going to go through and name them, but there's preachers today that, that you like. Some of you love them because they're worldly. They're worldly and you say, man, look, they, they're giving me a, a, a third way. There's a third way. There's a better way. There's a way where I don't have to be hated by the world. There's a way I don't have to stand for righteousness. There's a way I don't have to. I can, I can be both and. Because God loves sinners, right? He loves them so much that he died for them. He loves you and will take you however you are, but he won't leave you there. These famous preachers, some who have recently fallen, like in New York, we, people loved him because he was worldly. If we love things about preachers that are fleshly and worldly, we think, well, man, it's, they're, they're reaching the world. The Bible says the love of the Father is not in them. You can't commit adultery on your wife over and over again and say that you love her. I'm not saying nobody ever messes up. That's the thing with Christianity. It's not that like you never mess up. It's not that you're perfect, but the pattern of your life is dominated by what's in your heart. Hear me. You can't continually have an affair with the world and claim that your heart belongs to God. Listen to what James, the half-brother of Jesus says. James 4.4. 4. He says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What does he say? You adulterous people. You, you, you're wavering between two opinions. You, God can't be first place in your life and you love this world and the things in this world, things that stand opposed to God, things that hate God. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Baal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and then I will become, and then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God. Almighty. 
Touch no unclean thing. Come out from among them. Be separate from them. What agreement does a non-believer and a believer have? I'm not saying we isolate ourselves from unbelievers. I'm not saying we're mean to unbelievers. In fact, we should be so caring and thoughtful and friendly and kind to them. But that doesn't mean we don't stand for the truth of God's word. Being polite, being friendly, being considerate, being loving, being giving, all that stuff is great. We must do that as Christians. But we love in an evangelistic way, not because we have anything in common with them. Woe to you who have too much in common with worldly people. It's not saying something negative about them. It's saying something negative about you. Now hear me. This doesn't mean that as Christians we're immune to temptation. The temptation of worldly priorities, of worldly amusements, of worldly riches, of worldly lust. They still tempt our fallen flesh. But the desire of a true believer who actually loves God is not to succumb to their subduction. Watch out for those who are evangelists for worldly things who are posing as Christians. There's some Christians that are so dogmatic about evangelizing for worldliness. And they want to make people who stand for the truth of God feel bad. Oh, you're being judgmental. Had a person tell me one time when I put a scripture, actually it was James 4.4. I just posted the scripture on Facebook. Didn't give any commentary on it. And I had a person attack me and said, well, you're going to just, you're going to make people feel bad about themselves. You're gonna, this is why people don't, don't follow God. Because these judgmental things. And I messaged them. I said, you realize I literally posted a scripture that you supposedly believe was given under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit because they claimed to be a Christian. And they argued about how it was unloving, the tone of it. I said, what tone? It's text on a page. It's the word of God. I didn't say anything. Why are you offended by the word of God? Why are you an evangelist for the world? And that's my question to many, many people who promote worldliness and say, God accepts us this way. God loves us this way. The question isn't, does God love you? The question is, do you love God, you adulterous generation? Watch out for those who are evangelists for worldly things. Flee from them. Separate yourself from them. One of the evidences that we are truly filled and being transformed by the love of God is that we do not love worldly things anymore. Yes, we're still tempted by them. Yes, lust can creep in your heart. Yes, the desire for riches can creep in your heart. Yes, self-ambition can creep into your heart. But these are the peripheral things that are on attack against what's inside of us. The governing thing. Matthew 6, 19 says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moss nor rust can destroy, and where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if the eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
Then if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either they will hate the one and love the other, or they'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and anything else. He's talking about money in this particular place. The truth is, is there are many people whose eyes have not been spiritually open to the truth of God's word. They are unregenerate. They are posers. They are pretending to be Christians. And here's the, the question Jesus is asking. If you're blind and you think that darkness is light, how dark are you? How dark is the darkness in you? If you're an evangelist for the world, if you're proclaiming things that are ungodly as if they are godly, how dark is that darkness? Moving on to verse 16. Verse 16 in second, uh, the second chapter of 1 John. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. For that is worldly, all that's worldly. John says the, these things that he's, that's, you ever heard that term as a Christian, that's worldly? This is where it comes from. And John says that all of these worldly things, these paths, these inroads to sin that will infiltrate your soul, he says they can be fit into one of three categories of sin. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life. Of course, I like the way the King James or the NASB translates it. The New American Standard Bible says, For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. So I, I just like the idea that he's not just saying desires. Desire is a good translation, but he's using the sort of pejorative version of desire, which is lust. Desires can be good or bad, and that's a good way to translate it. But in the context, it's really pejorative or negative. It's actually saying uh, that's why the word lust kind of uh, invokes a different thought in your mind. Bad desires or lusts. Anywhere the holy and perfect law of God is transgressed is a sin that's punishable by death. This is referred to in the scripture as lawlessness. This is why the term rebellion or lawlessness, when it comes to the law of God, is very, very serious. We don't like the idea of the monarchy. We don't like the idea that all control rests in the hands of a king, especially here in America. It's not a bad thing, but due to our history and how we became a nation, sometimes the idea of the kingship and the lordship of Christ um, is offensive to us. The idea that, that he decides, that he has authority. But let's talk for a second about the term lawlessness. In Matthew 7, 23, Jesus, after uh, people come to him saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do? Didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we attend church? Didn't we cast out demons? All these sort of external things. In verse 23 of Matthew 7, Jesus says, I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
lawless is to be breaking or transgressing the law of God. And we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. That's why the grace of God is so appealing to sinners who realize who God actually is. That's the key. We actually see God for who he is. We understand that God is holy, that he is the creator of the universe, that he does owe us judgment based on the fact that we are imperfect. We see God for who, is it, who he is. Our eyes have been opened. Light has come into our eyes and it permeates our bodies. And the only, the only option is, is to cast yourself, thrust yourself, to throw yourself upon the mercy and grace of God. And here's the beautiful part. He promises that all who call upon his name for salvation will be saved. But the person who has that true knowledge will not be a person of lawlessness. There's so, much, there's so much in our world system and our culture that is enamored with the idea of lawlessness. I used to know a guy that, that he was a Christian, and if he hears this, I'm not picking on you, but he used to be enamored with this idea of being an outlaw. He played country music and you know, even had, I think, the tattoo lawless on his arm. And he, he wanted to reconcile these two things. He loved the sort of rebellion of lawlessness and he tried to mingle it with Christianity and it never worked out because it can't work out. Because those who are lawless, he will say, depart from me. That's not a badge of honor. Sometimes as Christians too, we, we want to carry this element of rebellion into Christianity. I'm not saying you never fall short, but a heart of rebellion is that of witchcraft. A heart of lawlessness is someone who doesn't love God. There's a difference between loving and knowing God and falling short of his glory and living a life of rebellion and lawlessness towards him or loving a system of the world that promotes those things. That's why we root for the bad guy. That's why we're enamored by you know, someone who robbed the banks and got away with it. That's why we love the ideas because we, this culture is, is focused on self, which is satanic. Let's talk about the lust of the flesh. This avenue of sin focuses on a perversion of normal and godly desires. Let me say that again. The lust of the flesh is an avenue of sin that focuses on a perversion of normal and godly desires. Sin corrupts things that God made and said were good. These are sinful impulses regarding sensuality and sexuality and self-gratification of all kind. It's, it's wanting things out of focus. It's wanting to have sex with someone who's not your wife. It's wanting to have sex out, out of the confines of marriage. It's lusting in your heart for something. It's looking upon things and, and wanting to gratify yourself with. It's wanting to, to gratify the sin nature of your, of your flesh. That's what it really comes down to. In Galatians 5.18, Paul gives two lists that, that are in contrast to each other. One is the regenerate person and one is the person living according to the desires and the lust of their flesh. Listen to what he says, Galatians 5.18-24. through 24. But if you are led by the Spirit, that means if the Spirit of God lives in you and you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that you're like, you know... Um, enamored or just following the Spirit's leading in one moment of your life. Now he's talking about if you are a person led by the Spirit, governed by the love of God, indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He says, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. 
Because if you are under the law, you are lawless and you're going to be uh, condemned of your sin. So the Spirit of God has saved us and we've overcome the evil one. Okay, too much commentary. Let me just read the scripture. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and these alike. I warned you as I did before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have in the past tense, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Do not love the things of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Listen, the works of the flesh are in opposition to the fruit and the evidence that you love God and the Spirit of God lives in you. These are outward evidences that you are of the world and you love the things of the world, all the, the first list. The enmity, the jealousy, the orgies, the sexuality, the sensuality. These are evidences that you belong to the world. This is evidence that the Spirit of God does not live in you. Please hear me. I'm not saying perfection. I'm saying you are governed by the love of God. And because of that, you have peace and joy in your salvation. And in an ever-increasing way, you're kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. Self-controlled where you don't let your sensuality run out of control. Self-controlled when, when lust comes, you, you, you fan your eyes. You take every thought captive. You do this for the same reason as a husband. You do it for your wife because you love her. Because you're not an adulterer. We're talking about patterns of life. We're talking about the, the evidence of who you are. Not that sin never creeps in, not that you never fall short, but the evidence that you are light and that the love of God lives in you. Moving on, the lust of the eyes. This is coveting things beyond what God has given you. The eyes are the window to the soul. And if your eyes looks at God's creation with appreciation, gratefulness, and thanksgiving, this is evidence of what's in your heart. But... If your eyes cause you to covet, listen, if your eyes cause you to be dissatisfied or unthankful or to be greedy for gain and the alike, this is evidence that the sin nature is controlling your life. Listen, Lot's wife in the Old Testament in Genesis died because her eyes disobeyed God. He said, if anyone looks back at the city Remember, they were leaving the city. It was a city of wealth and prominence, but it was full of sexual immorality. And God said, I'm going to destroy it, but I'm going to save you. But don't look back. And they, they fled the city. But because her heart was still there for the world and the things of the world, she looked back at the city she loved. And it says she was turned into a pillar of salt. She died because she sinned against God with her eyes. How about King David? It revealed that sin had crept into his heart. 
and that he wasn't, he wasn't really, he was in the right place in his life because he was not guarding his eyes when he looked upon Bathsheba. And he eventually entered into a, a, a damning season of sin. It was not damning, but it was very hard season of sin. He'd already departed from where he should have been. He wasn't with his men. And his heart was, was focused on the wrong things. And so this, this sort of pattern had him fall into sin where he looked upon Bathsheba. He, he had uh, adultery with her. Then he got her pregnant. And then to cover it up, he lied. And because the lie didn't work, he killed her husband. The difference, though, was when David was confronted with the word of the Lord, when the prophet brought the word of the Lord to him, David repented. And this was evidence that he was a man after God's own heart, even after falling into a pattern of sin. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus addressed the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And this is very important. Listen, Matthew 5, 27. He said, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say that if any one of you looks at a woman with lustful intent, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better to lose one of your members than your whole body to go to hell. So he deals with both of the fleshly perversions. The lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh are two things that are good. Your eyes are good. Your eyes can perceive the creation and, and, and through it glorify the creator. The, 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 the feelings we get, the, 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 the human contact, love, these things are beautiful things. But the perversion of them is the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes provide an avenue to the soul that are perversions of good things. But the third avenue to the soul that John speaks about is different than the other two. And this is the pride of of life. This is the root of all sin and is abhorrent and detestable to God. Pride is what caused Lucifer to be cast from heaven. Pride leads to destruction. This is why God actively resists the prideful because this is a posture that is lawless and rebellion towards God. Listen to what James 4, 6 and 7 says. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You know why the devil hasn't fleed from you? Let me tell you why. James just told you why. Possibly it's because you're prideful. You're not humble before the Lord. You're not broken before the Lord. You're not needy before the Lord. You're not, you're not understanding the poverty of your spiritual condition, that you're desperate for God in every regard. How can you be prideful when God is loaning you air that circulates through your lungs, that God is allowing your heart to beat a little longer? How can you be arrogant when you can't stop sinning? How can you be arrogant when you realize that everything given to you as a Christian and as a human is a gift from God? 
There won't be any proud people in heaven. Nobody will be there because they deserved it. They'll be there because of the grace of God. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, and he gives more grace. Therefore, because of that, he resists the proud. He didn't say he don't bless the proud. That he looks at the proud disapproving. No, it says he resists them. It doesn't mean like a little bit. You want the, the, the God of creation to actively resist you? But he gives grace to those who are humble. If you want the devil to flee from your life, if you want temptation to flee from your life, it doesn't, it doesn't happen by resisting the devil. It happens by submitting yourself to God. And then in humility to God, knowing it's through his power, through his word, and by his spirit, that when you resist the devil, he will flee. He's not fleeing because you're powerful. Don't let the, the new apostolic people get you confused. He's not fleeing because you're powerful. He's fleeing because God's hand is on you, because you're submitted to God's will. God says, this one is mine. William Barclay says that pride is the ground in which all the other sins grow and is the parent from which all other sins come. John MacArthur would say, in the flesh, humanity functions according to the base desires of animals. Through the eyes, individuals seek to have more than others, and through pride, humanity defies God and arrogantly attempts to de dethrone the sovereign of the universe. James 3.15 says, This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Or the King James would say it this way, This is not the wisdom that descendeth from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. These are three things that we contend against as Christians. That's what he's saying, earthly, sensual, devilish. The world, the flesh, and the devil. External temptation, the current of this fallen world pulling us and drawing us and trying to lead us to our destruction. Internal temptation that we have in our fallen sinful flesh. Even as regenerate believers, we still battle this flesh. We must crucify it daily. And then there is the source of the other two, the enemy of our soul, the pride of life, the evil one, the father of lies, the devil. And the streams of these enemies of the Christian life find a way to invade our soul through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, or the flesh, the world, and the devil. The devil used all three of these streams when he appealed to Adam and Eve in the garden, which plunged mankind into the bondage of sin. The devil appealed to Eve's desire for food that was forbidden, when there was plenty of other food that wasn't. That's the lust of the flesh. And then he used the attractiveness of the fruit to cause ungratefulness to find root in Eve's heart. This is the lust of the eyes. 
And then he promised to give her a knowledge so that she would be like God. And this is the pride of life. This is what John was dealing with in his time. These people that had this secret knowledge that set itself above this. This is pride. Listen, pride is the sin that will reformulate itself and find any crack in your life and seep back in. We have to be on guard against pride. It is the enemy of the Christian life. Humility is the ammo of the Christian life. It is the shelter of the Christian life. It should be the posture of the Christian life. All these three streams caused Eve to sin And then Adam accepted all the temptations without protest. And through this, Satan caused mankind to fall into sin. That's how man fell into sin, was through these three streams of temptation. Interestingly enough, the devil also used the same three streams to appeal to Jesus' flesh when he tempted him in the wilderness. Jesus came to undo the damage done by Adam and Eve. And the devil sought to destroy the redemptive work of the gospel. The devil appealed to Jesus' humanity with bread when he was hungry, trying to invoke the lust of the flesh. And then he offered him the world's splendor, trying to invoke the lust of the eyes. And then he tried to invoke the pride of life by having Jesus cast himself from a high place, presuming that God would not allow him to fall and hurt himself or die. He appealed to all three streams of temptation. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But Jesus, in his perfection, resisted all streams of temptation with the power of the word of God by simply quoting the book of Deuteronomy three times. And this is why Jesus is our great high priest. Hebrews 4.14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore go with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. Jesus was tempted but never sinned. And he says in John 16, 33, that we will have temptation. We will have tribulation, but take heart because he has overcome the world. And then in 1 John, John says, listen, that we have overcome the world by our confession of faith in Christ. Like our Lord who has redeemed us. Listen, hear me. We have the power to overcome sin and every temptation that we face. Anything that stands opposed to the word of God is evil and from the devil, no matter how simple or subtle it might seem. Anything that comes close to to infringing on this, to questioning this, that's that's what the devil did to Eve. He didn't say, hey, God's bad. He said, hey, are you sure you can't eat that? Did God really say? Isn't that what the world does to us today? 
It asks us, did God really say? Is that still true? Do you really believe all of that? For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the, of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And just like the devil in the garden, getting Eve to question the word of the Lord, this is the thread that undoes everything. Either we take God at his word completely or not at all. That's why deconstructionism will always lead to apostasy. I know I've said this a few times in the last few weeks, but that is higher knowledge today that's set above the word of God. People questioning the truth of God's word. They want to keep parts of it. They kind of want to, they want to deconstruct it, but they're deconstructing it by the world's wisdom, not by the wisdom of God. Was the world created in six days? Or do we believe in theistic evolution? If that's true, then when, when does the Bible start being true? If it's not Genesis 1, 2, or 3, do we start believing in 4, or 5, or 6? When God is literally speaking? Do we not believe sin is bad? Did Jesus not come to rectify the fall? If there's no real Adam and Eve, then there's no real fall. Then death isn't our enemy because it's part of the evolutionary process. You ever think about that? It makes Jesus in the New Testament a liar when he calls Adam a real person. And, and when Paul says that Jesus came to undo the damage of the first Adam by being the second Adam. Brings us to our final verse, verse 17. In closing, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here we see the outcome of both ways of life. Those who love the world and the things of the world, those who live for the lust of the flesh, those who live for the, the lust of the eyes, those who live in pride in this life are passing away. But those who do the will of God abide forever. If you're a reborn one, connected to the vine of life, and are truly a child of God, you will abide forever. Oh, that's, that's the, the assurance of my life. That's the reason I live my life the way I do. That's the reason if someone takes my life or takes my freedom, I'm not living for this world. I'm looking forward to a future city whose builder and maker is God because I've taken God at his word. And so is every true follower of Jesus. Listen to John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me, not whoever says a salvation mantra, or repeats a prayer at the end of a television show and then goes on living their life for the world, for themselves. No, whoever abides in me and me in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. The world is decaying and passing away. The Greek word parago is translated as passing away, but it literally means to disappear. The world is disappearing. 
The world is passing away from, from being the walking dead in this life to being the second death in the next life. No one's going to cease to exist. But they're passing away with the world that they love. The world is full of the living dead. Broken branches of rebellion that are decaying and just waiting to be thrown into the fire and burned. Salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ is being grafted, being a broken branch that's dead and decaying and dying and withering and being grafted into something that is alive, something that gives you life. This is what it means to be born again. This scripture promises that those who do the will of God, listen, he's not saying you're working your way to God. He says that those who love me will keep my commands. The evidence that you actually belong to God is that you live in the light, that you don't love the world and that your heart is dedicated to God. He says that that person, because they are connected to the source of life, will abide forever. Listen to what John 6, 40 says. He says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. This is the promise that I'm living for. If I didn't believe this, I wouldn't live my life the way I live it. I do believe it though. And this is what actual saving faith is. Saving faith, listen, saving faith, true saving faith, changes the way you live, not because you're trying to earn salvation, but because you believe things you didn't believe before. The test of love for the world that John is giving here is one that today in the church many reject. Many professed Christians refuse to examine themselves according to the words that the apostle John gives as a standard. And they don't because they would surely fail because they love the world. And I'm not being judgmental. I used to love the world too. I loved the world. I loved myself. I got my name tattooed on my hands in promotion of myself. I lived to gratify my flesh. But everything changed. Everything changed when I saw who God was. This God who owed me wrath and judgment but had sent his son to die for me. He bled for me. He bled innocent, perfect blood to save a wretch like me. And he's promised me that he will raise me up in the last day. How do I respond to that? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 12:1, basically just by doing what's proper, just giving your whole life as a living sacrifice to God. You cannot love the world and also love God. You can't drink from two different cups. You can't both simultaneously be darkness and light. You can't be alive and dead at the same time. You cannot serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and you will despise the other. You can't serve God and anything else. The greatest evidence of the love of God in you is hatred for the world, hatred for the sin you once loved, hatred for the, 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 the past and your shame. I'm not saying being ashamed of your past. I'm saying because God delivered you from it, which brings glory to him. 
but hatred for the world, hatred for the things God hates, love for the things God loves, and a heart of repentance and humility. This is evidence that the Spirit of God lives in you. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the transforming power of the gospel, for the light, God. Lord, like the old children's song says, this little light of mine, God, I'm going to let it shine. Because the true Christian cannot not let his light shine. Either you're light or you're not. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot and will not overcome it. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.